If you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 127. If you do not have a Bible, you should be able to find one under one of the chairs in the row in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible and you don't know where the book of Psalms is, open to the middle of the Bible and chances are you will be in the book of Psalms or close to it. When we are choosing our Psalms for this sermon series, I chose Psalm 127 in part because of small group. A number of years ago, our small group was, uh, uh, had a lesson with a memory verse that happened to be one of the verses from this psalm. A couple of years later, two more verses from the psalm showed up as the memorization passage for another lesson our small group was working on. When I realized that the psalm only has five verses total, I went ahead and memorized the rest. It's really stuck with me since then, and I hope to be able to convey to you some of what God has taught me through Psalm 127. If you heard Pastor Tony's introductory message, you will recall that the 150 chapters of Psalms are organized into five books. Psalm 127 is from Book 5. Book 5 has a high concentration of Messianic and praise psalms, and the themes of faith and hope, triumph and victory figure prominently. When you get to Psalm 127, you'll notice superscriptions that identify the psalm as a song of ascent and of Solomon. This psalm is one of 15 total songs of ascent, beginning with Psalm 120 and uh, continuing through Psalm 134. These psalms are also known as pilgrim songs. They are known for being brief. All but one consists of uh, fewer than 10 verses. They're also known for repetition and keywords, as well as for an attitude of hopefulness. It's widely thought that these songs of ascent were sung by the people who traveled to Jerusalem for the ceremonial feasts. There were three festivals each year where the faithful were obligated to travel to Jerusalem. The feasts of Passover and unleavened bread in the spring, the feast of weeks or Pentecost in early summer, and the atonement and the feast of tabernacles in the fall. As was the case with many major ancient cities, Jerusalem was built at elevation. It sits at almost 2,500 feet above sea level, so the roads rose as they approached the city. Travelers would sing as they ascended toward Jerusalem. Some people also think that the Levites sang these psalms as they ascended the temple steps to perform their services. The Psalms of Ascents are not the only special collection of psalms within Book 5. Psalms 113 through 118 make up the Hillel, which observant Jews traditionally sing on Passover, and probably what Jesus and the disciples sang on the night Jesus was betrayed, as described in Matthew 26:30. These two collections sandwich Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Book of Psalms, in which Pastor Tony preached on four years ago. The superscription of Solomon indicates either that Solomon was the author of the psalm or that the psalm was written in tribute to him. I think the former is the case for reasons I will explain in a few moments. Psalm 127 is one of two attributed to Solomon, the other ones being Psalm 72. Now we don't know how old Solomon was when he wrote this psalm. The words and the tone of the psalm suggest to me that he wrote it relatively early in his reign as king, but I could make an argument for his writing it at an older age. And I'm kind of glad that we don't know exactly when he wrote it, because locking it into a particular date might diminish some of the t- 
timelessness of the truths it presents. According to the categories of psalms that Pastor Tony outlined for us, Psalm 127 is a a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. But I say that because it doesn't fit into the other categories. It is not a lament. It is not an imprecatory psalm. It's not a royal psalm or a messianic psalm. And it's not a Torah psalm. So it must be a psalm of praise and thanksgiving, but it does not include the typical language we associate with praise and thanksgiving. In fact, if we were to break up the psalm into its individual verses, we might think that they came from the book of Proverbs. And that's no coincidence if Solomon is the author of both. So with that as the backdrop, let's turn our attention to the text. So follow along with me as I read verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This verse is an example of Hebrew parallelism in which the same idea is expressed in two different ways. And the idea being expressed is the first point in your notes under 1A, namely that work done independently from God is futile. But there is more to it than that. The choice of the two examples to illustrate this idea is no accident. First, Solomon says, unless the Lord builds the house. Shelter is one of the basic needs of all people. Virtually everyone lives in some kind of structure. Many of Solomon's contemporaries built their own homes or lived in homes that their ancestors built or contracted builders to construct homes for themselves. Solomon had houses built for God and for himself. And our day is not so different. In our congregation, we have people who live in houses they built themselves and people who have built houses for others and people who have had their own houses built. It's an example that almost everyone could relate to. Note that the word Lord is in all capital letters, which is a reference to Yahweh, the name of God. I don't think Solomon was issuing a messianic prophecy here, but I find it intriguing that when our Lord was incarnate, his occupation before starting his ministry was as a builder. Our English Bibles say carpenter, which implies that Jesus worked mostly with wood. You might even remember a bumper sticker that used to be popular that said, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. The Greek word translated carpenter in Matthew 13:55 and Mark 6:3 is tecton, which shows up in our English words tectonic and architect. It would probably be better translated as a more general term such as builder or craftsman or handyman. Such a laborer would have worked with not just wood but also stone and metal. Houses in Palestine were more commonly built of stone than wood. It's quite possible that Jesus was more of a stonemason than a carpenter. At any rate, if anyone knows how to build a house, it is our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that Solomon had more in mind here than simply a building or a domicile, though. In Proverbs 14.1, Solomon wrote, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Solomon surely didn't mean that the wisest women were all construction workers. And Solomon also surely knew that every structure is temporary. In his mind, the word house is metonymic for what's inside, that is, the household or the home. I think the same sense can be applied to verse 1 of Psalm 127. 
Our house will reflect what our priorities are and what is important to us. A house is only as good as its foundation. Establishing priorities and values independently from God is done in vain. Establishing a legacy apart from God is done in vain. Unless the Lord builds my house, I, build it, I labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds your house, you build it in vain. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. A year from now, our son will be getting ready to start college. I want to make sure that he is inviting the Lord to build his house. Now, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'm going to give you a little science lesson. Earthquakes are one of the ways the earth has of relieving stress. So when an earthquake happens, energy is released and travels directly to the surface. When it reaches the surface of the earth, it travels along the surface in two different kinds of waves. One wave travels in a straight direction, but it incorporates a kind of loop-the-loop -loop motion to it. The other kind of wave has a serpentine motion to it, like the way a snake slithers. That second kind of wave is by far the more damaging of the two to houses. And the reason is that many houses simply sit on their foundations. So when the snake-like wave comes along and moves the foundation, the inertia of the house keeps it from moving and the foundation is pulled out from underneath. The remedy is actually surprisingly simple. The frame of the house just needs to be bolted to the foundation. When the house is anchored to the foundation, the house and the foundation move as one. And the same is true for our houses when they are anchored to the foundation of Jesus Christ. When he moves, we will move with him. When Pastor Ryan preached from Psalm 23, he taught us how God is our provider and protector. The same roles are illustrated here in verse 1. If building the house represents God's provision, then watching over the city represents his protection. Ancient cities had walls around them to guard against attack from the outside. Sentries would keep watch for potential threats. Again, the city wall would have been an image that virtually everyone would have recognized. In our culture, we don't have city walls anymore. In many ways, our houses have taken the place of the city wall. We tend to regard our houses as fortresses or bunkers where we go for protection from the outside world. And there's certainly nothing wrong with wanting our homes to be safe places, but I fear we have lost a couple of valuable things in the process. For example, a city wall is an assertion that protection is at least in part a community effort. More importantly, when the gatekeeping is done at the city wall, we're more free to open the gates of our homes to others. Hospitality is related to the word host. It's about providing food, shelter, and safety to guests, whether they be friends or strangers. At its heart, hospitality is about making guests feel comfortable. It's not about entertainment. Hospitality is important to God. It's commanded multiple times in the New Testament, including by both Peter and Paul. Its importance is implied in a number of statements Jesus made and in several notable examples from the Old Testament. Any genuine effort to build a house should also include an effort to build hospitality. So unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. There's a risk in using a food analogy, especially this early in the sermon, but I think it will be helpful. 
I would like you to imagine a peach pie. Now, if peach pie is not your thing, feel free to mentally substitute another fruit. But we often think of our lives like that pie. We have a slice for job or career, a slice for family time, slice for hobbies or maybe social media. And the temptation we run into when we think of our lives in this fashion is to make sure that we have a slice for God. However, I submit to you that what Solomon is telling us is that God should not be a slice of the pie, he should be the peaches. His presence should fill every slice of our lives. Verse two elaborates on the idea of futility or vanity. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Solomon's not condemning hard work here. Honest hard work is good for the soul. The key word here is anxious. Now, not all anxiety is bad either. The Bible speaks about being anxious about the things of the Lord versus being anxious about the things of the world. I think Solomon is describing someone who is anxious about the things of the world, perhaps someone who is trusting in money rather than in God for his security. I confess that I think about money a lot. The strange thing about it though is that I don't have any wish list of things I wanna buy. I just frequently catch myself thinking that having more money will keep my family and me free from danger and will allow us to experience greater rest and relaxation. Instead of more money, what I need to pursue is more of God. A couple of weeks ago, I received a text message from a brother with a reminder that an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ needs to be the starting point in order to keep work and other activities in the right perspective. I appreciated the reminder and I would appreciate your prayers for me in this regard. Now look with me at how verse two ends. For he gives to his beloved sleep. This verse haunts me. It sounds like a promise and many people regard it as such. Watchman Nee in his book, The Normal Christian Life, relates an anecdote of a time when he suffered insomnia. He came across this verse, claimed it as a promise, and didn't suffer insomnia again. This verse also inspired Elizabeth Barrett Browning to write a poem called The Sleep. The first stanza goes like this. Of all the thoughts of God that are born inward unto souls afar, along the psalmist's music deep, now tell me if that any is for gift or grace surpassing this, he giveth his beloved sleep. I can't remember the last time I woke up feeling completely rested. Now admittedly, much of my sleep problems are my own making. For example, I sometimes stay up later than I should to watch my favorite football or basketball teams play games on TV. Also, in February of 2017, we got a dog named Bella. I thought about showing a picture of her, but I decided that would just make you sympathetic to her. <laughs> Bella is very observant and she learns new commands quickly but she has no concept of sleeping in on Saturdays or holidays, and she makes no allowances for rain or bitter cold. If you ask me at 6.30 in the morning what the worst decision of my life was, without hesitation, <laughs> I will answer getting a dog. Now, by 7.30 or 8, I usually have a more balanced perspective, 
and I would probably cite something I've done or failed to do as a husband or as a father as my worst decision. But the point is, much of my lack of sleep stems from choices I make. But there are aspects that are beyond my control. I often wake up at two or three in the morning and can't fall back to sleep. Does that mean I'm not one of God's beloved? Does it mean that the promise doesn't apply to me? Or does it mean that this verse isn't a promise, but a truism? Perhaps it's simply a statement that sleep is a gift of God. There's some debate about whether sleep is the direct object of the sentence or whether the sentence should be translated as, for he gives to his beloved in sleep. That translation would square better with the previous verses because it would be saying that God's provision does not depend on our efforts. He gives even while we are sleeping. That translation would also harken back to how Solomon received his wisdom in 1 Kings 3. Most of the major versions of the Bible seem to render the verse as the ESV does with sleep as the direct object. Regardless of which translation is correct, the verse affirms my second point. Under 1B in your outline, right? Blessings from God are to be received. What Watchman Nee wrote about walking in the spirit applies here. Quote, we have spoken of trying and trusting and the difference between the two. Believe me, it is the difference between heaven and hell. It is not something just to be talked over as a satisfying thought. It is stark reality. Lord, I cannot do it. Therefore, I will no longer try to do it. This is the point most of us fall short of. Lord, I cannot, therefore I will take my hands off. From now on, I trust thee for that. We refuse to act, we depend on him to do so, and then we enter fully and joyfully into the action he initiates. It is not passivity, it is a most active life, trusting the Lord like that, drawing life from him, taking him to be our very life, letting him live his life in us as we go forth in his name. The reason we practice spiritual habits such as coming to church, being a contributing member to a small group, studying God's word and praying is not to earn God's blessing or to compel him to bless us. It is so we trust him more, so we more easily recognize his blessings and so we more thankfully receive them. If verse two haunts me, I can't imagine how verse three might haunt certain women and men. It reads, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. On its face, this verse is a declarative statement that children are a blessing from God, and that's undeniably true. When I talked with Daria about this passage, the words she used were that we are to think of every child as a gift, not an inconvenience or a burden. Some of you might be saying to yourselves, but children can be inconvenient to which I would say they are inconvenient in the same way that church or small group is inconvenient. The priority justifies whatever trade-offs or accommodations we have to make. The word heritage suggests that children are an inheritance God bequeaths to us. Just as with gifts, an inheritance is to be received. So children are a blessing. A mistake we can make though is to infer from the verse that the lack of children means a lack of blessing. 
Such an inference would be a fallacy according to the rules of logic. It would be a fallacy according to experience, too. It would also be a fallacy according to the Bible. Consider that Jesus never had children, and neither did Paul as far as we know, but no one would ever say that they weren't blessed. Also in Luke 1, verses 6 and 7, we're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but Elizabeth was barren. So what are we to make of the verse? When I first started studying this psalm in preparation for the sermon, I was thrown off a bit by the transition from verse 2 to verse 3. It's almost as if Solomon switches trains of thought. Okay, I'm done talking about vanity apart from the Lord. Now I want to talk to you about children. However, the more I studied it, the more the connections became apparent. First, as with sleep or any other gift, the gift of a child requires dependence on God. A husband and wife have many options for how to make the conception event less likely, but very few options for how to make conception more likely. It's entirely up to God whether conception occurs. And second, children are also examples of God's provision and protection. The reward Solomon refers to is in what the children grow up to become. Look at the simile Solomon uses in verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. If we were writing a psalm that said that children are a gift from God, I imagine most of us would follow that line with lyrics about a child's innocence or the delight in the sound of children laughing or the joy of childlike wonder. Solomon compares children to a military weapon. Let's continue reading the rest of verse 5. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The word enemies is somewhat misleading. In Solomon's day, the city gate was where legal and business proceedings were conducted. It was where civil cases were tried and decided. The enemies that are referred to here are not marauders assaulting the city from outside. They're courtroom opponents. They're the equivalent of plaintiffs or defendants in civil lawsuits. The picture Solomon gives us is of a man whose children are standing in support of him and helping to argue on his behalf. In today's vernacular, they've got their dad's back. Write this down as point 1C in your notes. The true wealth of a home is in the relationships. At the time Solomon wrote, children helped provide for the household when they were old enough by being laborers in the family trade or on the family farm. Honorable children would also take care of their parents when they were too old or infirm to work anymore. Sometimes the weapon simile would take on a more literal meaning when the male children would help defend the home or city against attack. My grandfather recalled an incident that took place when he was around 10 years old. His father, my great-grandfather, was a pastor in Newark, Ohio at the time. The county had voted to prohibit alcohol, but the saloons in Newark were still operating. My great-grandfather was vice president of a committee that aimed to ensure enforcement of the prohibition. When detectives were hired to come to town with arrest warrants, mobs began rioting. 
After one of the violent altercations, a plot was hatched to lynch seven or eight of the leaders of the Prohibition Committee, including my great-grandfather. As my grandfather told the story, his older brother kept guard with a rifle at the front of the house, along with the chief of detectives throughout the night until National Guard troops arrived the next day to put down the riot. Now, for arrows to be effective as weapons, several things have to happen, and the same is true for children. Like arrows, children need to be sharpened, children need to be aimed, and children need to be shot. Uh, perhaps launched would be a better word. Children need to be sharpened, aimed, and launched. The sharpening process takes great care. To borrow a line that Pastor Tony once used, when you sharpen iron with iron or stone with stone, sparks are going to fly. And that's okay. Just make sure that the whetstone is making the right kind of contact. If you hold it at the wrong angle, it will actually blunt the edge instead of hone it. The arrow will be less useful in service as a weapon. Now, children, you play a role in your own sharpening process. Did you know that? I repeatedly remind Matthew that he will never become someone he is not already becoming. I recently started reminding Victoria of that as well. And I will say that to you too. You will never become someone you are not already becoming. The Bible says that being like an arrow is a good thing. You should want to be an arrow. You should pray to be like an arrow. But you will not become an arrow if you are not already becoming an arrow. You will not become a thankful person if you do not give thanks. You will not become a patient person if you don't wait. You will not become a loving person if you do not show love. You will not become an arrow if you disobey when your parents sharpen you. Now, we don't expect you to be perfect, but we do want you to try to get a little better each day. Arrows also need to be aimed, and aiming requires looking at the target. Parents, that's our job to keep our children aimed at the target. An arrow can't aim itself. Now, I stand before you as a parent who all too often focuses on sharpening my two arrows without pointing them to the target. But I do know that I can't aim them at the target if I'm not looking at the target myself. Daria and I have not reached the stage of launching our children yet. Those of you who have can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine the hardest part of launching children into their adult lives is the uncertainty of not knowing what their flight path will be once they leave the bow. I have a little bit of archery experience, and one thing I learned was that there was no guarantee that the arrow would fly right even when I aimed well. No two arrows were exactly alike, and the wind could be unpredictable. All we as parents can do is aim as well as we can so our arrows have the best chance of hitting the target. So the view through Solomon's eyes is that work done independently from God is futile, blessings from God are to be received, and the true wealth of a home is in the relationships. And those points are as true for us as they were for Solomon. But we as believers have the vantage point of looking at the psalm through New Testament lenses. 
When we look at it through New Testament lenses, we can glean some additional lessons. So again, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The Lord still is building houses. Under 2a in your outline, write, we are living stones in a spiritual house. We are living stones in a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2.5 says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The house Solomon built for God was a physical temple where God made himself present with his people. Today, God's people gather in churches, but the church building is not the temple. We are the temple. And God makes himself present in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The word you is plural, so Paul is addressing the Corinthian believers collectively. Unless the Lord builds the spiritual house, those who build it labor in vain. My fellow elders, there is certainly a message here for us not to trust in our own wisdom and our own methods. But there is also a message for all of us. Do you think of yourself as a living stone? Do you think of yourself as an essential component of a larger structure that helps make the structure what it is? Let me put a finer point on it. Are you a contributing member of Harvest Bible Chapel Decatur or a spectator? I'm thankful to know that most of you are contributing members or on your way to becoming contributing members. And I can tell you that this church would not be the same without you. None of us is indispensable, but each of us is significant. We are living stones in a spiritual house. Verse two, for he gives to his beloved sleep. There is a kind of sleep promised to every believer. Under 2b in your outline, write, God gives to his beloved everlasting life. God gives to his beloved everlasting life. Sleep is the metaphor the New Testament uses for the death of a believer. It's a fitting metaphor because sleep is temporary just as the death of the physical body of a follower of Jesus Christ is temporary. We will receive resurrection bodies that will share everlasting life with God himself. I referred to Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem earlier. Let's look at the final stanza. You can read it on the screen. And friends, dear friends, when it shall be that this low breath is gone from me, and round my beer ye come to weep, let one, most loving of you all, say, not a tear must o'er her fall, he giveth his beloved sleep. God calls his children beloved. If you're a child of God, you are beloved, and if you are beloved, God will give you sleep rather than death. He will give you everlasting life. Verse three, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The most important line of descent is not biological. Under 2C in your outline, write, spiritual children are a blessing. 
A spiritual child is one who comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ after our proclamation of the gospel. Much like conceiving biological children, we play no role in whether spiritual birth occurs. The Holy Spirit determines if the individual will admit his or her own sinfulness, will believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for all sin, and will confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Our role is simply to announce the good news of what Christ has already accomplished. In terms of a heritage to pass on, it doesn't get any better than that. Every believer is a spiritual child of someone else, and each of us can also be a spiritual parent. I want you to engage in a thought experiment with me. There are probably 70 or 80 people in the room right now. Imagine if we were the only Christians on the planet. Now imagine if in the next year, each of us were able to see two people come to know Jesus Christ. And a year after that, each of them had seen two people come to know Christ and so on. Do you know how many years it would take to reach all 7.6 billion people on the planet? About 27 years. The power of spiritual multiplication is incredible. And that 27-year time frame is if we were the only church sharing the gospel. But we know there are other like-minded churches in Decatur and in Illinois and in the United States and around the world. 52 weeks ago today, I had the opportunity and honor to preach a sermon at a church in Adana, Turkey. That church started with three people five years ago and has since grown to 45 members. Our church here also has a partnership with the Harvest Church in Douala, Cameroon. Those are just two examples. There are countless other churches doing the work of making disciples along with us. So we are living stones in a spiritual house. God gives his beloved everlasting life and spiritual children are a blessing. In a short while, we will enter into a time of communion together. Before we do that, I want to remind you that even though Psalm 127 is presented in the language of wisdom and exhortation, it is ultimately a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. Let's praise God that he will oversee our lives when we invite him to. Let's thank him for the many blessings we have received. Let's thank and praise him for our relationships. Let's be thankful that he has given us everlasting life as well as the privilege of introducing others to Jesus Christ. Pray with me.